Raise your hand if you know what Bojangles is. Raise your hand if you've eaten at Bojangles. Okay, I think it's just in the southeast, from what I understand. I don't even think it's in Texas, is it? Yeah. Uh, most Thursday nights in college, after we had our, our large campus crusade for Christ meeting, there'd be about a thousand of us there at NC State University. Uh, Fifty of us or so, we would congregate uh, at Bojangles on Western Boulevard, less than a mile from NC State's campus. And we'd all descend upon uh, this fast food chain. We had rich fellowship accompanied with bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits at like 10 p.m. We'd have what's called a three-piece. It's just basically chicken strips. Uh, We'd have French fries seasoned with Bose seasoning. Sweet tea, bowberry biscuits, cinnamon twists. It was good food, at least for a college kid. I don't know how I feel about it now. I have been back. It's still good, but it's not nearly as good as it was when I was 20. It was good food with good friends. It was a rich, enjoyable time of fellowship. Now imagine this. Imagine Bojangles or whatever food place you have in mind, Whataburger or In-N-Out, whatever it is. Imagine that place that brings you nostalgia. Now go there in your mind with great anticipation, biting into that bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. With the the, the salt of the bacon, the buttery aspect of the biscuit, and you bite into it. Now imagine tasting nothing. Where did the Cajun spices go? What about the saltiness of the bacon or the butter in the biscuits? You know you're eating food. It looks the same. It's reality, but you can't taste anything. You've experienced it before, yet what once was tasty has become tasteless. It's not hard for some of you to imagine. Raise your hand if you had... COVID and couldn't taste anything. Remember what that was like. You see, sometimes we can go through spiritual seasons like this. Everything is normal. At least it appears normal. There's no, been no earth-shattering thing in your life. Common sense says that you should be happy right now. Yet, Something is off. You are suffering. You see, we understand suffering when we lose someone we love. Just found out yesterday afternoon that uh, one of our family friends, Catherine Stewart, 19, diagnosed with neuroblastoma, a rare pediatric cancer, when she was five. And she made it all the way to 19. She died yesterday. Catherine was in my youth group when I lived in Toronto. I love her family dearly. And I'm shaken by it. Absolutely heartbroken. I can make sense of that, right? We get that. When you lose someone you love. Or we understand what it's like to suffer when we sin. When we make choices that are against God's holy will for our lives. And we rebel against what he has clearly disclosed in his word. We often reap the consequences of that. We understand that kind of sin. It's a little more quid pro quo, cause and effect. 
We understand what, it's, what suffering is at the hands of those who persecute us, mock us, malign us, revile us, lie about us. That kind of suffering makes sense. But sometimes our suffering doesn't make sense. Sometimes the joy of the Lord seems so far off. We want it and it's gone and we can't look back and say, why is it like this? I've been a pastor of this church for five years almost. I know that not everyone can point back to a time in their lives where they understand exactly what I'm saying here. Where they've had spiritual seasons of depression. But I do know that more people suffer in this way than we're aware of. If you can't relate as directly to the psalmist here in Psalm 42, remember that one day you might be able to. Or know that someone you care about probably has related to the psalmist or is currently going through some kind of spiritual depression. The, psalm, the psalms help us to be acquainted with the sufferings that we go through, the sufferings of others, and the sufferings of Christ. In Psalm 42, the psalmist is dealing with the confusing state of a downcast soul. And we get to see how he responds when our suffering doesn't make sense. Psalm 42 has this repeated stanza, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The title of the sermon is When Suffering Doesn't Make Sense, and we're going to have two points. I'll go ahead and give them to you now if you take notes. One is sorrow when suffering doesn't make sense. Sorrow when suffering doesn't make sense. The second is trust when suffering doesn't make sense. Turn to Psalm 42 and... Um, I forgot to look at the page number. Someone from the Pew Bible wants to tell me what page Psalm 42 is on. Mary? 469. Page 469 of your Pew Bible. And it's just as a reminder, Psalms are songs. It's poetry to God. They're supposed to conform our affections, rouse our affections... Help make sense of how we're feeling in light of who God is. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When suffering doesn't make sense. Sorrow and suffering doesn't make sense. This is the first psalm of book two of the psalms. We said last week, this book of psalms is is, um, really five books. Book one, two, three, and four, and five. Book one is Psalm 1 through 41. And book two begins here in Psalm 42. And particularly Psalms 42 to 49 are attributed to the sons of Kor. You can see that above where verse 1 starts, there's what's called a superscript. It should say something like a, uh, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So 42 to 49 are all grouped together. And they actually kind of flow together. And you can see that whoever uh, the divine uh, hand has ordered this so that we would read them in secession. The Korahites, the sons of Korah, had the musical responsibility at the tabernacle and at the temple. They were musicians and they sang and they composed these psalms. They led the congregation in this way. You can look at 1 Chronicles chapter 6 or 9 to read more about the responsibilities given to them. So verse 1 opens up with this imagery of a deer panting and longing for water. It's used, this image is used to express a spiritual soul thirst for God. Like a deer searching for a stream in a desert. So His soul is searching for God. Uh, How many children do we have here? I see a few kids. Some Atkins, some Changs, some Carringtons. Okay, some Van Steenbergs. There's other kids in here. How many of you watched a nature show before? Okay, have you ever seen a nature show in Africa? There's some of my favorites because there's all kinds of predators, but also there's the seasonal droughts. And whenever there's a gazelle, let's just stay with a deer here. When there's a deer and they're roaming around Africa, either in the desert or the the Sahara, which is a desert. (laughs) That's why you write out your illustrations sometimes, but that's okay. It's more natural. Um, Whenever they're in the desert, they're looking for water because it's the, the dry season. And they're panting. And Dave, David Attenborough, the, the BBC, the, the British guy, you know, he's got such a compelling voice. And you're kind of on the edge of your seat. Oh, no, is a deer going to fall over or is he going to find water? I don't think they've ever shown a deer that never gets the water. It's always, a, it's always a positive ending. But the deer gets the water. But not after panting and thirsting for water. And so here the psalmist is saying that, That he longs for God's fellowship like a deer longs for water. He's panting in his soul. And verse 3 gives us greater insight to his sorrow. He 
has been crying day and night. His tears have been his food day and night. He's poetically saying, I'm crying and I'm crying a lot. On and off, all day, tears are coming my way. Perhaps he's so sorrowful with what he's poetically saying is, I don't even have an appetite. You've been so sad, you can't even eat. You skip meals. Something similar is said in Psalm chapter 6, where the psalmist says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Unceasing tears that go on and on. Days characterized by sorrow. I remember one good friend talking to me about uh, her state of depression. And she says that it felt like an elephant was sitting on her chest. The pressure to even get a breath in daily activities that most people find second nature feels so difficult. So waking up, personal hygiene, getting the house clean, eating food, affirming your family, going outside, reaching out to others, saying I love you to those who love you. Giving attention to your friends, your spouse, your kids. Sometimes when you are feeling so distant from God, so sad when when tears have been your diet day and night. All things that are normally natural and effortless that used to be easy for you, that seemingly are easy to all people, can feel like climbing the mountains in the Rockies. Simple, basic tasks. Charles Spurgeon says that there are certain forms of disease which so affect the brain and the whole nervous system that depression is a melancholy symptom of the disease. Quite involuntary unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real reason for grief and yet may become among the most unhappy of men. Because for the time your body has conquered your soul. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if any of you have felt like this or if any of you are feeling like this now. To feel this distant from God. Is heavy. And then, as if the pain isn't enough, the psalm says that yes, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? There are people mocking him. You see that? Saul just being poured onto this already gaping wound. He's being ridiculed for his sadness. I don't think this psalm is about the consequences of sin or grief or the consequences of persecution. I think what's going on here in verse 3, he's saying, I'm at a very low place. And people all around me are saying, where is your God? It reminds me of, of Job, if you've been familiar with the book of Job. How even his friends, they try to help him. But they seemingly blame him. For his downcast spirit. 
rather than aiding him in his pain. The psalmist here is saying, why do people hate me? They mock me and they, they say, where is your God? If you look down to verse 10, you can find similar language. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries, they taunt me. And they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmist is in essence saying, I'm low. And instead of people coming around me and helping me and supporting me, they are in essence mocking me. Or saying, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Can't you do this? Now, gird up your loins. What's wrong with you? If your God was real or if you actually had a, a better relationship with God, then you wouldn't feel this way. It's tough to be low. It's even tougher when people are ridiculing you for being low. Last night, I was low. I've been a Duke Blue Devil fan for over 30 years. I was in the Junior Blue Devil Club as a kid. I was in the Christian Leitner fan club and I proudly wore my shirts to school. For some reason, in God's providence, Josiah Sherrill reached out to me a few days ago and hey, he said, hey, you want to watch the game together? And I said, sure. He said, I'm pulling for Carolina. I said, sure. I was pretty confident Duke would win. They did not. It was a close game. I've never watched a game with Josiah when we've cheered for different teams before. It was the biggest mistake of the year, 2022. You see, Josiah's joy was salt in my wound. As I saw Coach Krzyzewski kind of leave melancholy for the last time court, with me, it's like, and you'll get this if you're, I think, if you're older than like 35. For me, it's like a part of my childhood. It's like, I've known this, this system for years and he's just leaving. And just I rightfully so, nothing's wrong with it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. It just took me a while to get there. He's just high-fiving John Massey. Doesn't, he's just kind of haphazardly cheering for Carolina. And I'm over here. Mark, you're a pastor. Mark, it's your house. Mark, be above approach. Be happy for him. Uh, Josiah's joy was, was salt in my wound. I was low. And, uh, and understandably, it's a sports analogy. Josiah wasn't really helping me out in my low point there. But when you're down and others kind of ridicule you for being down, it, it hurts. In verse 4, the psalmist says, it hasn't always been like this, so. <laughs> this is not characteristic of my whole life. In fact, he, he used to lead the people, look at verse 4, the people of God in singing in the house of God. We shouted with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. His present condition is utterly unrecognizable compared to his former days of joy. Rather than giving him comfort, though, this memory troubles him. Like joys of previously being in the house of God with the people of God, leading them singing and even dancing with a glad heart. It seems like worlds away to the sorrowful heart. 
Psalms are saying, I was that. Now I'm not that. And I don't know why. God, where are you? My tears are my food day and night. What has happened to me? I've shared this with the church before. It's been about three, four years. I remember um, being in Izmir, Turkey. I was having a really rough season. Psalms like this were, were comfort for me, knowing that I was not strange as a child of God. I remember being on, on a bus. And if you've ever been to Izmir, Turkey, it's a beautiful city. It's right on the bay. And the sun was setting over the mountains. Colors of orange and pink and purple and yellow just beaming over the sky. I remember sitting there in a city of four million people. And I said to God out loud, I think I'm the most miserable person in this city. And that sunset's doing nothing for me. Why are you cast down on my soul? I have an amazing wife, wonderful children. Fellowship with like-minded Christians. And I can see looking back like, oh, I, I guess if this factor, this factor, and this factor, they kind of led to this kind of, yeah, that's true. There's some circumstantial things that could have changed. I couldn't see any sin. No one else could. People tried to. Just sometimes helpful, sometimes hurtful. But being this way, feeling so distant from a God you used to once have rich fellowship with, it's a low, low feeling. And so, Warnell Road, if, if there's ever anyone like this, or if you're like this now, what you need is you need people to sit with you. You need Christians who love their Bible, those kind of Christians, to sit with you, to open it with you, to read it to you, and to be patient with you. You need people to perseveringly love you. One word, are you that kind of person? Are you ready to endure with other Christians in this way? If you're a husband or, or a wife, let me just try to give you some counsel right now. If your spouse is going through something like this, I don't think you're enough. I don't think you're enough. That's a heavy burden to put on a wife or to put on a husband. Gather other Christians around you to help you carry the load through your spouse's difficult season. And if you don't feel like this now, if this feels pretty abstract for, from, for you right now, that's a good thing. You don't desire to feel this way. This is a psalm to help you when you do feel this way. Man, but life throws curveballs, doesn't it? Young church, life throws curveballs at you. And psalms like this, Understanding the sorrow of the psalmist here can help you through that. Well, verse 5 serves as a chorus of the song. In verse 5 and also verse 11, we see that repeated stanza. And you also see at the very end of Psalm 43. 
Psalm 43 ends with the same refrain. Now, let's see how to trust God when suffering doesn't make sense. So we kind of saw the state of, of this heart of the psalmist. Now look and how to trust God when suffering doesn't make sense. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Here's what he does. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. The land of Jordan and of Hermon could mean the headwaters of the Jordan. Mount Mazar could refer to a mountain far off from where he has been. I think the point is what he's saying here is that I'm really far from Jerusalem. I'm really far from the temple right now. Because these places are not near Jerusalem. His soul is cast down because whether he's literally far from Jerusalem or he's using these physical places to talk about his soul being far from Jerusalem. He feels very far from God and from the joys had of being with the people of God. He longs to be there, but he's in another place. It reminds me of, of Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In all this, notice the very plain fact, though, that he is trusting God. It's obvious, but maybe it's not so obvious to some of us. Because you don't cry out to someone that you don't believe in. He's speaking to God this whole time. If you really believe someone has given up on you, you don't speak to them and reach out to them. He's trusting in God. And then we see four ways he's trusting in God. God's providence, God's love, God's immutability, and God's glory. Look at verse 7. God's providence. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He does not think that his condition is just happenstance. He does not believe that his pain and his suffering is just kind of wind that rushes over him without anyone sending it. These are not unforeseen waterfalls, but it's your breakers, oh God, your waves, God. In his trust, he knows that his feelings are not outside the sphere of God's sovereignty. God is over all and in all. Christian, when your spirit is downcast, when you are low, it might not make sense. And you don't know all that is going on. But it is apparently helpful and a, display, and a display of trust to recognize that God is over and behind the suffering. You see, the psalmist does not point his finger and wag his finger at God. And say, you are wrong for doing this. You are evil for doing this. No, not at all. The Bible clearly teaches that human responsibility and God's sovereignty are not incompatible. In fact, this is what he's able to anchor the rest of the thing, the rest of God's attributes in, is God's good providence over his life. In John Piper's book that came out last year called Providence, he says this about 
suffering and God's sovereignty. He says, God is sovereign over suffering, which means it is not meaningless. It is not wrath. It is not ultimately destructive. It is not wanton or heedless. It is purposeful. It is measure. It is wise. It is loving. This is how the psalmist is able eventually to get out of this miry pit that he's in. Because he believes in the good providence of God. And he doesn't believe that God is just sitting there. See, sovereignty means he's got control. He's big. He's powerful. So if you just believe God is sovereign, you could, in a sense, say, God sees it. He will somehow make sense of it all day. But providence says this. God intentionally is caring for you, even in the suffering that you don't want and don't ask for and don't understand. Your breakers, your waterfalls. Charles Spurgeon somewhat famously said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Friends, if any lesson in suffering is there, it is that it is meant to help us trust God. For me, this is a lifelong lesson. I am still learning that when an affliction or trial or when a a spiritual state of depression is there, to understand that God, at least in some of his purpose, one of his purposes is to help me trust him in deeper ways. Well, secondly, you you see God's love. Look at verse 8. You see he's trusting in God's love. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is, is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God's constant steadfast love is there with him. He's preaching to himself, not listening to his circumstances merely, but he's telling himself, God's love is there, and his God's love is over me. Even in the darkest of nights, his song's over me. The Lord sings over me. The Lord delights in me. I am his. God is the one who brings me life. He loves me. Then you see in verse 9, God's immutability or his unchangingness. I say to God, God, my rock. Whenever you see rock in scripture, it's trying to get at the idea that God does not change. And he's worthy. He's a sure foundation. Like the song we just sang about Christ's assurance, and steady anchor. But look at, look at verse 9. He says, So I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But again, friends, this is a display of trust in God. Even though you feel this way. Do you know you can talk to God like this? Pour out your soul to him like this? One theologian, uh, W.S. Plumer, said this about uh, commenting on this verse right here. He says, remembering denotes care, support, reward. He remembers God. He knows he's his rock. He knows that God cannot change. And then verse 10, he trusting Yes, in the providence of God, the love of God, the immutability of God, but he's also trusting in the glory of God. 
Look at verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The psalmists, much like Moses and Abraham, are concerned with the glory of God. And so when God's holy people called out from Egypt, called to be holy among the nations, set apart, consecrated unto Yahweh, when it looks like they're suffering, when it looks like the enemy nations are attacking them, one kind of constant or repeated prayer to God is like, God, what about your glory? We're supposed to be your marked off people. People are supposed to look at us and say, look, those are the people who know the true God. We worship false gods, but there's a true God. It's a sign that they're concerned with the glory of God. John Piper, again, in his book, Providence, says that every day for all eternity, without pause or end, the riches of the glory of God's grace in Christ will become increasingly great and beautiful in our perception of them. We are finite. They are immeasurable, infinite. Therefore, we cannot ever take them in fully. Let that sink in. There will be always more, gloriously more forever. I love that. Christ is eternal. Christ is all glorious. And when we are with him in paradise, when the, when the veil is pulled back and we are beholding our Savior face to face, the glories that will rejoice in the moment we enter his presence will echo on forever and ever and ever because he has no beginning and no end. You see, friends, we can trust God in this way as a psalmist does, but we have even more reason to trust him because of Jesus. You see, we can trust God's providence because of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one prophesied about in Genesis chapter 3. That he'd come through the line of Adam and Eve. That God would providentially work through the rebellion of man and woman. That one would come and conquer the deceptive serpent. Jesus is also the one in Psalm 22 that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he's on the cross. Jesus is the one in Isaiah 52 and 53 who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's the king. And God providentially worked through the sufferings of the Messiah. We can trust God in suffering because of the love of Christ. Suffering Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh. You live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved you and gave himself up for you. The love of Christ surpasses all knowledge, all understanding, all wisdom. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no poverty, no danger, no weapon, no height, nor depth. Friends, misleading feelings cannot separate you from the love of Christ. If you feel numb, that can't separate you from the love of Christ. If you feel like there's an elephant on your chest, that will not separate you from the love of Christ. If you feel melancholy, that will not separate you from the love of Christ. If you experience loss, you are not lost because of the love of Christ. 
Depression cannot separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is full of love toward those he purchased through the blood of his sacrifice. If you are here and you are not yet a Christian, thank you for coming. I think this is the best place for you to be today. Because you get to hear this life-saving news. The good news that while you were a sinner, while you were rebellious from God, while you don't deserve his love, that while even when you feel in a horrible state, you can have a love that is fixed on you no matter what you feel. Because sin is in this world, we have all kinds of feelings. Because of the fall of this world, we can go through all kinds of melancholy or depression or a soul that is downcast. Even when we didn't cause it. Even when we can't make sense of it. So if you're here not a Christian, let me implore you to come to Jesus. Who will never turn you away. Who has steadfast love for those who are his. And what he requires of you is that you come to him. Understand that you cannot earn your way to him. Find yourself blessed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn from your sins. And trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You will find there an ever-present help in a time of need. A Savior who says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, we can trust in Christ because Christ is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can trust in Christ because, as 1 Peter says in chapter 5, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He has called you in eternal glory. He is trustworthy no matter how you feel. What a kind and merciful Savior Jesus Christ is. What power he has to be with us even in our weakest moments. If I characterize you some way this morning, let me just encourage you. Be with God's people. You see what psalmist here wanted to be? He wanted to be in the household of God. Do not separate yourself from other people. But the weird thing about feeling downcast, the last thing you want to do sometimes is reach out to other people, isn't it? When you're feeling this way. So church, let's be wise. Let's not be unaware of the sufferings around us. Reach out to those. Don't accept answers for how are you doing? Fine. How are you? Fine. Be patient. Ask good questions. Create a church where we can be vulnerable with one another. Where our pretenses and our defenses are torn down. And if they're not, we're patient and we're persevering with someone in wisdom. We need a lot of grace to do this. And God will richly supply us with that kind of grace. Learn to talk to yourself and not to listen to yourself, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Learn to fight the way the psalmist fights. To be honest, to open up your heart to God and say, why are you downcast, O my soul? Have you forsaken me, oh my God? In conclusion, 
we're going to sing in the next song as we take the Lord's Supper and behold the Lamb. Friends, know that our suffering in many ways is just walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And so if you turn to page 10 of your bulletin, we see these words. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. Friends, if you are in a low place now, this is your certain future that is fixed and cannot be changed. We do share in his suffering to varying degrees until that day where we are with him face to face around the table of the king. We proclaim Christ will come again. We ask God to bring us out of our state of depression, to bring us out of our state of melancholy so that we can have our eyes fixed on him and continue to proclaim our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to be surprised by our suffering. When our suffering doesn't make sense, when it's not because of our sin or because of some kind of loss and grief, oh Lord, help us to be a people that rely upon you, that are gracious with one another, that are quick to pick up the phone and read scripture, to visit each other at one another's houses. Lord, morph us into a family whose head is Jesus Christ. That is who we are, oh God. May we look like it. May we experience those kind of realities. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.